When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, so there's um, there's certainly a long potential list. It's funny, I was um, as I was preparing to talk to you today a little bit about this, I couldn't help think back to my days at um, Baker Hughes when I started there. Uh, and that was kind of when I started there it was fresh off uh, a lot of sanctions that had come down with regard to um, Crimea. And- this is Tom Fox. We rarely get torn from the headlines episodes on the FCPA compliance report. But today we begin a special two part podcast series with Matt Silverman. We're going to take a look at potential sanctions that could be levied against Russia if they invade Ukraine. Obviously, if this podcast post after an invasion will be sanctions after an invasion. But in part one, we look at the potential sanctions the Biden administration could deliver against Russia. In next week's part two, we look at what you can do to prepare for such an eventuality. This special two-part episode is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode, and I'm thrilled to have back with me Matt Silverman. I asked Matt if he could help us understand some of the potential sanctions that might be levied if Russia invades Ukraine. We rarely have breaking news on uh, this podcast, but we're recording this on Thursday, February 17th, and at least as of the time of the recording, there's been no invasion, uh, but there's really no word of whether the risk of invasion has increased or decreased. So uh, we wanted to go ahead and do this podcast because uh, it's something that uh, is on the radar of every trade compliance professional and, frankly, every business executive who literally does business from Russia to Europe, from Russia to China, to the U.S. and back. So, Matt, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me on this most significant topic. Sure, Tom. Very, very happy to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. So, Matt, uh, could we maybe start off by uh, me asking you, what are some of the potential U.S. sanctions you see uh, either in the hopper or even down the road if Russia invades Ukraine? Yeah, so there's um, there's certainly a long potential list. It's funny, I was um, as I was preparing to talk to you today a little bit about this, I couldn't help think back to my days at um, Baker Hughes when I started there. Uh, and that was kind of when I started there was fresh off uh, a lot of sanctions that had come down with regard to um, Crimea and the, the Russian invasion of Crimea. And I think it's certainly uh, possible based on what we've um, heard in the news and, and what the Biden administration has hinted to um, as to what may potentially be coming down the pike, that we may see a lot of sanctions similar to what we saw with the um, 
with the invasion of um, Crimea seven or eight years ago. Um, the Biden administration has been working with, uh, you know, obviously um, within the, the administration, defense, state, commerce and treasury um, to put together what uh, what some Senate Republicans are calling the the mother of all sanctions packages. So there's there's a lot of potential uh, for some pretty uh, drastic and, and widely impacting sanctions. Obviously, the most comprehensive and and really what would be uh, drastic would be a, a, a near complete embargo of Russia. Uh, so what we have similar to Cuba, Iran, Syria, and North Korea, um, and obviously there are some some exceptions there with regards to all those countries, but those are what we call pretty much comprehensively embargoed countries. So it is possible, um, and we'll see what happens in the coming days and weeks with regard to an occupation of, of Ukraine, um, that Russia could move on to what we call um, the, the country group E-list, uh, which would which would basically make them equivalent to a, a North a North Korea or Cuba in terms of a comprehensive comprehensive sanctions. Um, so nearly all trade and investment of Russia would be restricted. Uh, and then we can kind of move a little bit down from there uh, because it's probably not realistically what's going to happen. Uh, but there's a lot of other different options. So one is sanctions that are what we call sectoral sanctions. So related more toward certain sectors of Russia's industry. So we saw this with regard to um, the Crimea invasion so many years ago, The, um, for instance, the oil and gas sector. And there were certain sectoral sanctions placed on the energy and oil and gas sector in, in Russia, many of which still exist today. So it could be more of a focused sanctions package focused on Russia's energy or financial sectors. Um, there's, of course, also the possibility that just certain exports of items or technology to Russia are, go- are going to be prohibited. So uh, the you know, statutory language will carve out whether it's certain aerospace products, defense products, you know, computing, artificial intelligence products. There's quite a, quite a long list there, as you can imagine. So we're not talking about you know, the exportation of um, of food or or automotives necessarily, but um, but probably things like uh, aerospace products, defense, artificial intelligence, other types of emerging technologies, and putting certain prohibitions on them. So uh, it, it could be outright uh, restrictions or or denials, um, a presumption of denial from state or commerce if you're going to apply for a license to export X, Y, or Z or just the requirement that you now need to submit for a license in order to export X, Y, or Z, depending on your industry. I think what is uh, very possible and what a lot of um, people are talking about is the idea that certain Russian entities would be designated under the foreign direct product rule. So for those, uh, for those listening on the call uh, who are kind of unfamiliar with this, the foreign direct product rule is a way that the U.S. government um, has found to, to, to reach the, um, I mean, we, we already have, the U.S. government already has quite an extraterritorial reach when it comes to the exportation of goods and services and products. Um, the foreign direct product rule is a way to expand that reach even more. And the way it has been most um, famously or infamously, depending on your viewpoint, 
um, uh, been been used is with regard to Huawei in recent years, both both in the um, well, obviously in the Trump administration it started, and the Biden administration has really carried through the foreign direct product rule as it relates to Huawei, and and potentially what we could see is an expansion of that rule as it relates to certain Russian entities. So basically, the way that this plays out is, um, you know, the U.S. controls. Anything that is exported from the U.S., anything that's manufactured in the U.S., for the most part, it is subject to U.S. export control laws. Um, the extraterritorial scope of U.S. export control laws come into play when we talk about the de minimis rule, which is basically the U.S. government says, okay, we're not just going to control what is made here in the U.S. or exported from the U.S., but if you're manufacturing, let's say, a laptop in China or in Uruguay or in Panama or wherever it is, and 25% or more of that content is U.S. content, well, that is subject under de minimis uh, to U.S. export controls. So that's, that's one way that the U.S. government kind of expands the scope of their extraterritorial reach. Um, the foreign direct product rule goes even further to say not only are we looking at the de minimis, whether it's 25%, 10%, et cetera, but anything really that is produced, manufactured abroad, if it is the direct product of U.S. origin technology, then it is subject to U.S. export control laws, which would mean that it is subject to whatever stricter export control laws or sanctions come into play with regard to Russia. So what the... Um, what, what the Biden administration could do is essentially expand the foreign direct product rule to not just include companies like Huawei, a Chinese telecommunications company, but other um, specific Russian companies. Um, and they it most likely wouldn't be applied to the entire uh, country of Russia. It would be certain Russian companies. So if you're a, a U.S. company and you have a subsidiary in Europe, or you're a, a European company, you make a laptop, and or you make a, a, a semiconductor equipment, and some or all of that uh, machine or product is the direct product of U.S. origin technology, right? Even if 99% of what's in that product is not manufactured in the U.S., you are still going to be subject to the foreign direct product rule. And therefore, we're going to see a much larger expansion um, of uh, kind of the extraterritorial reach of U.S. export control law. So a lot of um, people in the industry, in my industry, in export control law uh, are talking about this as a, a very realistic possible thing that's coming down um, the pike. For, for those of you who have kind of had to deal with this as it relates to Huawei, it can get quite complicated. And we'll talk, I think, a little bit more in the podcast today about some ways to prepare yourself. But the foreign direct product rule and the intricacies of it uh, and how it's developed for certain countries or for certain companies as opposed to others um, can make this for quite, uh, it creates a lot of difficulty sometimes in making sure that companies are compliant with it. But I, but I think that the ex, uh, expansion of the FDPR is uh, very, very realistic in, in making sure not that, not just that the U.S. is controlling what's coming out of the U.S., but the U.S. is really able to control what is coming out of other countries. So, for example, China. Um, you know, China 
is not likely to impose sanctions on Russia if they invade Ukraine. There are certainly other companies or other countries, I should say, the UK, um, I think Japan just the other day, if not today, got on board and said, yes, we're going to mirror what our allies are doing. But, you know, we countries like China, right, may not impose the same sanctions that the UK and the US do. So, so a way to still limit what's coming out of China is we or the U.S. government imposes the foreign direct product rule, thereby products and equipment that is manufactured in China that still has that U.S. origin touch point is uh, potentially also going to be restricted from going to Russia. So that's a, a very long-winded explanation, um, but it gets it gets complicated, and I think the foreign direct product rule is a very realistic um, um, consequence of, uh, of, of a potential Ukrainian invasion. The other things, of course, are, you know, adding specific Russian entities to what's called the foreign, I'm sorry, the specially designated nationals list. This is a OFAC list. If you're an SDN, uh, you are you are a blocked person, right? You, as a U.S. person or a U.S. company, you are blocked, you are prohibited from dealing with companies or, or entities or people on the SDN list. So, um, you know, uh, companies like Rosneft or Gazprom, uh, an assortment of other companies um, that are either already on that list or could be added to that list is another way um, of having really targeted targeted sanctions. So it's, it's being discussed right now. In fact, it, I believe um, the Republicans in the Senate actually proposed a bill, if not, I think it was uh, yesterday, that would focus on this exact issue with regard to the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, which effectively could cut off Germany and other countries in Europe from a lot of critical natural gas supplies that are coming from Russia. Uh, and, and part of that legislation specifically focuses on um, making certain Putin cronies and companies um, uh, fall within the specially designated nationals list, and, and therefore they would be a, a prohibited or a blocked entity. Um, there's other kind of more, if we want to talk generally, you know, prohibiting Russian entities from accessing the U.S. financial system, um, prohibiting U.S. persons or entities from investing in Russian companies or requiring them to divest if they have an interest in any Russian companies. Uh, we saw with Iran the use of secondary sanctions, so imposing what we call secondary sanctions on entities or individuals um, that conduct transactions with Russia or with Russian sanctioned parties. So secondary sanctions, some sometimes a little um, uh, controversial and not always um, easy to, um, to comply with, but essentially we are sanctioning those parties who do business with sanctioned parties. Um, freezing Russian assets located in the U.S., um, banning Russian assistance to certain Russian entities, and obviously withholding any type of aid to any organizations that um, that assist Russia. And then, of course, from an import side, you know, prohibiting certain Russian imports or imposing, you know, incredibly high tariffs or higher than usual tariffs on specific um, Russian imports. So those are all um, potential sanctions that could be coming down the pike um, from a state perspective. And we saw this a lot with Iran and Iranian sanctions. There are U.S. state level sanctions that are also possible. Um, uh, Texas, where you are, from example, has U.S. state level sanctions against Iran, meaning that the state has enacted laws that prohibit 
businesses in that state uh, from investing in or doing business in um, certain firms that conduct transactions with Iran. And we could see the same type of move with U.S. state-level sanctions with regard to Russia. So the state of Texas, the state of Arizona, where I am um, imposing sanctions on state firms and companies that are doing business with um, uh, Russian companies. So that is that is quite a long list and, and, a, and an exhaustive answer. But I think uh, just, just trying to give our listeners an idea of the potential um, sanctions that could be um, that could be headed uh, our, our way. I think that the foreign direct product rule is uh, at the top of that list, a very very realistic one, and probably at the the bottom of that list in terms of not being as realistic is moving Russia into the country group three category, or sorry, country group E category, which essentially would ban all investment, all transactions, uh, etc. And then somewhere in between is probably what we will see with an invasion, which is more Russian entities, companies, individuals being named to um, a specially designated national list or other um, or similar types of lists like those. We'll be right back with more from Matt Silverman after a quick word from our sponsor. Matt, let me circle back to one of the uh, potential sanctions you listed, and that's secondary sanctions. Uh, I raised that because uh, we we saw the Trump administration talk more extensively about secondary sanctions, particularly around Iran, than I'd heard in a long time. But the thing that uh, I got out of the potential secondary sanctions is that it it exponentially increases the reach of sanctions. Number one, number two, it can make it extraordinarily difficult sometimes to know um, whether you violated a secondary sanction or not. And three, uh, which, of course, um, requires much more extensive due diligence and drives up uh, yet additional costs. So I was wondering if you might uh, go into a little more detail about uh, secondary sanctions and uh, does it really expand out the reach uh, much more, or am I just uh, got it wrong? No, you, you do, and that's why um, that's why when I stated it, I, I did mention that it's somewhat um, controversial, if that's the right topic, or, or it's certainly a headache for a lot of companies who are who are trying to do the right thing, trying to be compliant. You know, making sure that, um, and we'll talk about this a little a little later, but making sure that they're doing their due diligence. They're screening their customers. They know who they're doing business with. They're not doing business with sanctioned parties or entities. It's a little bit harder when it comes to secondary sanctions. And, and there have been, um, you know, lots of companies who, whether through maybe no fault of their own or if they had done a little more due diligence, they probably would have been better um, protected. But um, they they are doing business with companies unaware that those companies are doing business with um, uh, with sanctioned entities, or or in the case of Iran, with you know Iranian entities or or, or companies or parties, etc. So the secondary sanctions um, it can be very difficult to make sure that you are in compliance with them. Obviously, uh, the the most important part there is knowing your customer, knowing who you're doing business with. I mean, sometimes it is. Um, 
literally as easy as going onto someone's website and seeing who their suppliers are or who their customers are or who their business partners are. Uh, and if there are red flags raised because they're doing business uh, with a certain on a certain project or customer who's in Iran and, or who's in Cuba or um, Syria, et cetera, doing a little bit further due diligence on those. Um, there are, uh, you know, companies who can provide you with consulting services and companies and content providers who can provide you with additional information on certain companies who may be dealing with um, sanctioned parties or may be dealing in areas of the world that raises a red flag where you need to say to yourself, okay, we know that this customer who we're selling to, or we know that the supplier who we're dealing with, we know that they're not um, in a prohibited country, or we know that they're not on a sanctioned party list. But we have information now, or we've done some due diligence, or we've received information from this content provider that they may potentially be violating um, secondary sanctions issues because of who they are doing business with. So some of it's as simple as, and I don't say simple, um, simple is probably not the right word, but sometimes it's it's as um, simple as going onto a website, but also, you know, knowing your customer, knowing your suppliers, providing them with end use statements, providing them with uh, maybe uh, a letter to sign that assures uh, you, the company, that they are not in turn doing business with any entities, parties, or even entire countries where secondary sanctions issues could then um, provide a problem. And that's just a way. You know, obviously, you can't police the entire world, um, but it's another way to um, to mitigate any potential secondary sanctions violations. But you're you're absolutely right. It, it, it um, secondary sanctions certainly expand the scope of, of of potential liability and can and can be quite a headache for companies to um, to comply with, even even if they're doing everything that they should be, or or have a very good compliance program already in place. That concludes part one of our special two part episode on potential sanctions against Russia if Russia invades Ukraine. Join us again next week where I bring back Matt to look at what you can do to prepare for this eventuality. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will check out my five-part podcast series on the trial of the century, the Enron trial, which recently premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this podcast series, I visit with business journalist Lauren Steffi, who covered the trial for the Houston Chronicle as its business columnist. We take a look at what led to the trial, some of the key witnesses and moments from the trial, and what the trial inevitably meant going forward. It's a fascinating look at the Enron trial some 15 years after it occurred. I know you'll enjoy this special podcast series. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.